I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part nine in our series, An Alternative Society. How should disciples of Jesus pray? And what does it mean for our church to become a house of prayer? You know, I was thinking this week about uh, praying with and over my kids. I've been praying with and over my kids for... Geez, I guess as long as I can remember, long before they had any grasp of what was happening. And uh, it's a, you know, it happens throughout the day. It happens certainly whenever someone gets hurt. And it happens um, every evening before they go to sleep. And I had this specific memory come to mind when my first son was old enough to entertain conversation. Uh, I was at the edge of his bed late at night. Uh, I was about to pray over him uh, as I had done every night before then and have done every night since then. And I stopped and I said, uh, how about you pray tonight too? And he smiled all nervously, you know, and he pulled up the blanket and he kind of like fidgeted around in his bed. He said, okay, how? <laughs> uh, if you're not there already, go ahead and open to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Like Cam said earlier, we're nearing the end of our annual vision series, which is, if you're new, it's kind of a time we spend every single year in the fall to circle up, remind ourselves and one another why we're here, and hopefully, with God's approval, where we're headed in the months ahead as we embark on another year together as Van City Church. With that, let's look at Luke chapter 5, and let's read beginning in verse 15. I'm going to have you guys jump around a lot in the Gospel of Luke, but you're going to be fine. Luke chapter 5, verse 15, the story goes, the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and what? Prayed. prayed. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Turn the page to Luke chapter 6. Let's read verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night doing what? Praying to God. He spent the night praying to God. Turn over just a bit to chapter 9. Let's read verse 18. Luke 9, 18 once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, so that's interesting, there's like an isolated time of prayer, but his friends, his closest community are there with him, and then skip down to verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter and John and James with him, and he went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. That doesn't usually happen when someone prays, by the way. And then skip down to verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. Now, hang in there just one more time. Turn over to Luke chapter 11, and let's read the very first verse. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just like John the Baptist taught his disciples. Now, keep your finger here in Luke or your bookmark here. We'll be back in a few minutes. This, of course, if you've read any of the Gospels or the first century biographies of Jesus' life, this is just a small selection of scenes 
amongst many more just like them. If you read about Jesus of Nazareth, even a little bit, you'll see that he prayed a lot, and he prayed in lots of different ways, out of all kinds of emotional states and dispositions. When Jesus felt close to his father, he talked to him, with him. When he felt far from his father, he talked with him. For Jesus, prayer was braided around the routine of morning, noon, and night, his daily and weekly schedule, his time of celebration, his time of crisis and of grief, of suffering, of lament, of celebration, community, solitude, all the time praying. Prayer in the life of Jesus is a lived state. He prayed every day, often for long periods of time, sometimes all night long without stopping. Jesus put other things aside in order to pray. He even put people aside or things like healing, his ministry work, if you like. He wanted to pray. He seemed to enjoy time with his father. He seemed to need time with his father, like eating or drinking and breathing. And he taught his disciples to live out the same kind of thing. In fact, he became frustrated when they lapsed in their lives of prayer. So why is it that prayer isn't like that for almost all of us? In fact, I venture to guess that, you know, if I were to survey the room anonymously somehow asking how many of you feel tremendously satisfied or even competent in your experience, your practice, your lifestyle of prayer, my guess is that lots of us, if we were honest, would answer regrettably, no, I don't feel entirely satisfied and at times not even competent. And it's not because we don't want to. Maybe some of us, if we're being entirely honest, would admit that prayer kind of bores us sometimes or that it frustrates us like doing battle with a wandering mind while desperately attempting to like recite an inner monologue at the ceiling. And maybe it feels as if there's no back and forth. There's no gratification other than feeling a little less guilty now that the chore is completed and you crossed it off the list. Good Christian today, you prayed for a few minutes. Maybe there's nothing to compel us out into you know, the wilderness to pray all night long. We can hardly motivate ourselves to wake up a half hour earlier. And if we did, what would we even say? What would we do all night with nothing to do but pray? And why do we even pray at all in the first place? Honestly, we have streaming services and social media and text message threads. We can do therapy over webcams now. We have Amazon Prime. We have DoorDash. Most of us are not, quite frankly, in want of basic provision. It's not like we don't have anything else to do. Of course, we recognize, those of us who follow Jesus, that it would probably be good to pray more, but, you know, what can you do? And if we really think about it, the fact that we're not uh, emulating the lifestyle of Jesus in prayer, we probably feel bad about it, so we don't think about it. And then, you know, we just go on stabbing at a touchscreen or distracting ourselves or preoccupying ourselves with the other things that we're a little better at. And yet, for thousands of years, the people of God have understood prayer as one of the most essential dimensions of our entire personhood. In fact, in the simplest, broadest terms, this idea of prayer is just living and talking with God. This is how I explained prayer to my kids that night when my son said, okay, how? I said, let's talk with Jesus for a minute. And I try to emphasize that word with. You know, prayer is inherently a shared experience with God. It's dialogue, not monologue. It's quality time together. Whether or not you say anything, prayer is with. We talk with God. We sit with God, not just talk to God or look at God. In fact, an even broader understanding of prayer, and this is one I like the most, 
is life with God. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller defines prayer like this. He says, prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect to God. And yes, though prayer is uh, relational by definition, it's also a practice. It's a spiritual discipline. It's something that you set into motion by practice and get better or worse at. Like any of the disciplines, the purpose or goal is not a quota or any real deliverable to speak of. It's to have and enjoy relationship with God. Think of it the way you think of any relational conversation in general. When I get home from work, I talk to my kids. How was your day? What happened at school? Who'd you sit with at lunch? I ask this every day. I'm not sure why I'm so preoccupied with who sat with whom at lunch, but I ask every day, and then I ask questions about it. Really? Why, why didn't you sit with this person? Anyway, and then they'll ask me. They'll say, how was work? What did you do? Now, of course, the point isn't actually to inventory the day's events. It's to connect with one another by sharing thoughts and stories and feeling and time. But many of us hear an analogy like that one, and we think, well, geez, I'm not sure how to pray like that. And you're in good company. Jesus' disciples felt the same way when face-to-face with the living example of a praying life day in and day out for years, Jesus' apprentices seemed to become aware, to, aware of two things. One, they don't know how to pray like Jesus. But two, they want to learn. Imagine having seen all those things that we read about in Luke's gospel and after all of them to finally sidle up beside Jesus and go, so can you teach us how to do what you've been doing this entire time? They come to him, they ask, Lord, teach us how to pray. And then they point out, John did it. He taught his disciples how to pray, which is a great and noble request. It's also fascinating because these disciples were privy to all of the incredible feats of Jesus, not just the way he prayed. But if the disciples ever asked, Lord, teach us to cure leprosy with a touch, or if they ever asked, hey, teach us to drive out demons or calm a storm with a spoken phrase, teach us to prophesy, teach us to freaking resuscitate dead people or whatever, if they asked for any of those lessons in particular, the biographers of Jesus don't mention them. But we do read that they came to him and said, teach us how to pray. And one reason we think this is, is that his apprentices could at least understand in some sense that all Jesus did was an outworking of his connection to the Father. And the reason that they knew that is because he said it frequently. (laughs) So maybe they knew enough, even in their kind of infancy, they knew enough to think, if we can understand this, the way that our master prays, then we would get the secret to all this other stuff. And Jesus answers the question, how do you pray? But predictably, of course, his answer is sort of complex. So let's look at Luke chapter 11, and let's make our way through Jesus' prayer template line by line. I think that there's something here for all of us, even those of us who are deeply familiar with this text. Luke uh, 11, verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just like John taught his disciples. And then he does it. He says to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. 
Now, that's Luke's version. Probably you, a lot of you know this, uh, maybe even by heart, probably from Matthew's version, the Lord's Prayer, we call it. If you don't have it memorized, then I'm sure you've heard it, or at least parts of it, even in popular culture. And our familiarity with this incredible piece of writing can sort of estrange us from what is still so unique about the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. For starters, notice the way that Jesus doesn't reach the requests part of his prayer until halfway through the entire template. And that's what this is. It's a template. When you unpack the template, you can see that there are four presuppositions out of which Jesus approaches prayer in the first place, meaning when you pray, bring all these assumptions with you before you even say a word. Take these things as a given. First, God is your Father. In fact, the term Father is easily Jesus' favorite way to refer to God at all. Jesus is saying, listen, when I pray, I begin, my, I begin by understanding and acknowledging that God is my Father, and you should do that too. But for some of you, I know the term uh, father, thinking of God as your father is about the last thing that you would like to do. Or maybe it's not that you wouldn't like to do it, but it's really hard. How can you possibly frame prayer with God as your father if your father failed you or hurt you or hit you? How can you picture God as a heavenly father and have that be a good thing when your father on earth abused or neglected you or if he abandoned your family? And I don't have any fast or flippant solutions. Uh, for some of you, praying to God as Father is part of a complex journey toward healing that unfolds in the vulnerability of community and in things like counseling and, and, frankly, in prayer. But your image of God, meaning everything that comes to mind, like consciously and subconsciously, when you think of God at all, it will, please hear me on this, it will shape the way that you pray for better or for worse, in ways that you realize and ways that you don't quite realize just yet. Your image of God can create a robust life of prayer, or it can destroy your prayer life altogether. Greg Boyd puts it like this. He says, the way you imagine God is the single most important factor in your life, for our relationship with God is mediated through our mental images of Him. How can how, how we imagine God thus determines the sort of relationship you have with him and the sort of difference this relationship will make in your life. If we embrace an untrustworthy mental picture of God, we cannot enter into a life-giving relationship with him. Everything God created us to be depends on the beauty and accuracy of your mental picture of God. Or consider this from John Tyson. He said, unless you break the stronghold of false images of God in your mind, you'll never be drawn to prayer. If you're bored with God, you may be the person who's boring. <laughs> or it could be that you're just distracted by trivia in our culture. When you break through that boredom, you'll be drawn to the glory of who God really is. Now, this is what I'm getting at. If in your mind, either consciously or less so, God is an angry, dissatisfied dad who's preemptively disappointed, who's retributive, who's frustrated with you, why would you want to pray? If God is far away, if he's unfathomable, if he's like shrouded in stoic mystery, then who can figure out how to pray? But if God is a kind, generous, affectionate, gentle, caring, compassionate, forgiving Father, 
And if God's unchanging disposition toward you is loving goodness, if God doesn't just love you but likes you and wants to be with you, well, then you can approach that guy. Now, of course, you don't have to have kids to understand prayer. Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. They seem to have it figured out pretty good. But for me personally, nothing in my own life has shaped my portrait of God quite like being a dad. My kids want to talk to me all the time. And I'm not saying this to sound uh, like a better dad than I am. I actually really like it. In fact, I remember when our first kid was very small and uh, Abby and I were driving somewhere. I'm like, man, I can't wait for this guy to be able to talk to me. And she's like, oh, well, I'll remind you you said that at some point. <laughs> a lot of wisdom there. Anyway, I love it. They regale me with long lists of how they currently rank their favorite movies and animals and video games and ideas for things that they're going to make. Isla has had a movie about a female boxer whose father dies in development for the last three years. Ask her about it. It's called The Ring. She's working on the screenplay. Anyway, <laughs> they ask me all sorts of questions about the way things was when I was a kid and always about which movie is the scariest. I'm like, I'm not even going to tell you about these. Why you ask? They ask about like uh, what Abby and I even did before we had kids. And the answer is anything we wanted, you know? <laughs> And then they ask for things. They ask constantly for food and water or to sit with them or to entertain them or to listen to them or to read with them or to be read to. <laughs> and they ask for my time. They ask for my attention. They ask for my provision. They ask for extra stuff, things they already know they probably won't get, like new toys or random candy throughout the day. Why do they ask, even for things that they know they don't usually get, my theory is that they know they can. I don't always say yes to every little request, but they believe that I want to give them things and that I want to take care of them, that I want to be with them. They understand that that's my role in the relationship and they just assume all of those things before they say anything. They're already talking to me so much throughout the day, they may as well include what they need and what they want in that conversation. Now, listen to me on this. Jesus says, think of God that way. Whether your dad on earth was that way or not, think of God that way. That changes everything. And then, after that, that's the starting point. Now, framing God correctly in your mind, Jesus goes on. And if you're looking at an NIV, you'll see a footnote right after um, Father that points out that in some other manuscripts include the phrase, in heaven. There are actually two versions of this prayer, like I said earlier. earlier uh, this one, there's another longer version in Matthew's gospel, which also includes in heaven. And I think just to take a quick moment to parse that out, because in America, in the Western church tradition, the Protestant church, we sort of had a wacky cultural notion of heaven. Some of us hear the word heaven, and we can't help but imagine like a, a cloudy metropolis in some cosmic dimension filled with winged angels and disembodied spirits where God sits on like an uncomfortable-looking golden throne. But that's not at all what the authors of Scripture mean when they say, our Father in heaven. In fact, the term here in Greek is a plural. It's the heavens. The word is aranos. Actually, it just means air <laughs> or sky. Our Father in the air, our Father in the sky. The idea is our Father who is in the very air all around us. 
surrounding our space at every single minute and in and around everything as close as the air in your lungs right up against your skin. Jesus is saying, as you pray to your good Father that wants to be with you and give you things, remember, he's not far away. He's not aloof. He's not inaccessible. He is as close as the very air around you. And that's not just semantics. Some of us read Our Father in Heaven, and we can't help but think, Our Father who is forever locked in some far-off dimension I cannot understand or reach. But scholars argue that Jesus is saying exactly the opposite. How close is the air around you? How present? How unavoidable? Think of God like that. Your life is often an endless parade of distractions away from God's closeness, piling up you know, like an awful round of Tetris. And you, and you can't see or hear or feel God through that blockage. And so he feels far away at best and entirely absent at worst. But that's an illusion. God is as close as the air around you. We just forget or we distract ourselves or we wall ourselves off from God's presence or we disorganize the things that we love and we tangle our priorities and we make a mess of things. I was talking to my spiritual director this week about a trip I took to Alabama a couple of months ago to see some old friends and play music, and I told him that I'd been looking forward to this because I thought of it almost like a spiritual retreat. So I realized I'd have a lot of downtime, change of scenery, all that. So I got up early every morning, and I walked around in Birmingham, which is not the best, um, but I'd walk up and down these streets in the small town where our hotel was, and, and I would pray and listen to worship music. And then I'd come back and sit in this hotel lobby drinking this terrible coffee and reading my Bible. And uh, I'll be honest, I didn't get much of a spiritual buzz at all. And I was really looking forward to this time. In fact, I was downright disappointed. And uh, it wasn't like there was some kind of crisis, like I screamed you know, into the air in Birmingham, where are you, or something like that. I had just anticipated this time of rich connection, and it was just sort of routine. It was fine. It wasn't even bad. It was just sort of ordinary. So then I'm telling my spiritual director this, this whole story, and he's just sitting there nodding, and then he starts to ask simple questions. Was it good to see your old friends? Yeah, it was. It was great to see them. It was fun to play music again? Yeah, yeah, it was. Was it meaningful? Sure. I thought we were just small talking. And then uh, as I answered like all these different questions, he finally shrugged and said, it sounds like God was all over this trip. What are you talking about? And then I started laughing. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess he was. <laughs> Because I was looking for connection on my terms, and in this specific, really Christian-y way, but it, it was actually much simpler than I had made it. And in teaching his disciples to pray, Jesus begins by saying, listen, first, you begin understanding who God is to you, and then remember how very close he is at all times. Whether you think you feel it or not, that's just reality. And then he goes on with how to pray. And he says this weird thing, hallowed be your name, which is obviously antiquated language. We don't say hallowed a lot. Not enough hallowed in today's conversation. Um, I'm from Georgia, so I often say words and expressions that are apparently meaningless up here, you know, or that Abby, even though she knows it's been so many years, will be like, what's a pocketbook? I'm like, you know what a pocketbook is. It's your purse. Or why do you call a grocery card a buggy? Because that's what it is. It's a buggy. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, in the South, this is, I was trying to think of an example, and this is one of my favorites. We have this term for rude behavior called showing your butt, 
so here's an example. My sister came to visit years ago, the one time she came to visit the Northwest, and she was convinced the whole time, she's a very Southern person, uh, that she was convinced someone was going to try to make her eat kale. I don't know why. <laughs> As if kale is all that we have to eat. I, don't, I never mentioned kale. I don't know what the big deal was. Or even like kale's a bad thing to eat. Kale, I like kale. Anyway, I kept telling her, look, I had to like get real at one point and say, listen, no one is going to force you to eat anything. And I'm not even sure an all kale restaurant exists. You'll be fine. If you don't want kale, don't order kale. And then she conceded. But then we're walking up to a restaurant. An ordinary, I think it was like Laughing Plant. It was like a burrito place. We're walking up to an ordinary restaurant. She's like, if I get in that restaurant and there ain't nothing but kale, I'm going to show my behind. Which means that she's going to have a bad attitude. That's what that expression means. If you don't know that idiom, <laughs> the threat is even more disturbing, you know? <laughs> The people who over, overheard it were like, that's a weird thing. Now, my point is that some phrases obviously have less meaning depending on the context or the time, and, and most of us don't say things like, hallowed be your name. You know, we might read them in maybe worship lyrics at most, but we don't pray that way. So what does it even mean? It's about setting God's name, and another way of saying that is God's identity, God's personhood, who God is. It's about setting who God is apart from everything else in the world because he's holy. And another way of saying that is he's altogether unique in the whole universe. This is a way of framing your prayer with the understanding that no one and nothing is like God. And in relationship, you get to access what makes God unique, his love for all people, he's the only one who does that by default. His joy, his peace, his, his calm, his stillness, his contentment, all things that are entirely unnatural to us. So the point is, you're not just there to ask for stuff. You get to do that, absolutely. More on that in just a minute. But that's not the point. The point is that you get to be with your Father in heaven who's close to you. And when you're with him, you get to access who he is and what he's like, which is unlike anything else in the whole world. The dignity and value of God rubs off on us in that quality time, and we get to approach him and be around him, and he gets to call us his children and his friends. His honor is transferred to us. So you begin by recognizing, yes, God is your father. He's so intimate. He's so close, and he's also God. Tim Keller put it this way, to hallow God's name is to have a heart of grateful joy toward God, and even more, a wondrous sense of his beauty. Consider how different this is from the normal way we use prayer to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes and happiness reside in things, as in how successful we are or in our social relationships. We therefore pray mainly when our career or finances are in trouble or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy, when life is going smoothly and our truest heart treasures seem safe, it doesn't occur to us to pray. Seldom or never do we spend sustained time adoring and praising God. We know God's there, but we tend to see him as a means through which we get things to make us happy. For most of us, he has not become our happiness. This whole hallowed be your name thing is really about beginning your time with God from the outset, recognizing he is the source of all that is good 
including true contentment and satisfaction and well-being, all that should frame the way we understand talking with Him at all. And then, finally, Jesus wants us to frame our conversation with the understanding that prayer actually does something. It changes things. He teaches His disciples to pray, Your kingdom come. That single line, so quoted in church culture and in popular culture, that contains two massive implications. One, God's kingdom has not come, at least not all the way, not yet. And two, we can pray that it will, and that prayer changes reality. It changes reality in ways that are really subtle and sometimes imperceptible to us. But it also changes reality in ways that are so incredibly grandiose that they can only be described as the coming of God's kingdom when someone is healed, when you experience breakthrough, when something changes, when God's love pours out and through, and you can only say, oh my God, this is a glimpse of the coming kingdom in the here and now. And I realize many of us, when pressed, we might say, on paper, we believe this intellectually, but in my experience, we often don't believe that it's true. What many of us really believe, and we can't help it, is that whatever's going to happen is going to happen, whether we pray or not. And this is not an idea shared by Jesus or the authors of the Scriptures. You have a say, for better or for worse. I have a say, spiritual beings, angels and demons have a say. Life is wild and chaotic and even arbitrary at times as a result of infinite overlapping wills and decisions. And yet, in all of that, God is actively involved in the minutia of your life, and he acts, and he intervenes, and he often does so based entirely on a single prayer. There are stories like this all across the library of writings we call the Bible. It's filled with stories of God interacting, changing, moving as a result of people just asking him to do stuff. Abraham pleads with God, and God changes his mind. Moses prays, God relents. There's a beautiful story, one of my favorite in the Old Testament. Hezekiah is told uh, by someone who speaks on God's behalf, in no uncertain terms, get your affairs in order, you're about to die. Hezekiah prays, God changes his mind, reverses his decree, sends the prophet back in and says, listen, God says something else now because you prayed. This is maybe my favorite quote from Dallas Willard. God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he's only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does regardless of whether we pray or not is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. Now, all of that is the setup Jesus' disciples come to him, teacher, master, rabbi, Lord, how do we have the incredible prayer life that you demonstrate every single day? And Jesus says, I'll teach you. First, before you even step into the reality of prayer or ask for anything, I want you to know these things. God is your father, and your father is as close as the air all around you, and you get to not only enjoy the closeness of a good father, but you get to tap into all that makes him so unique in all the universe. And when you talk to him... Things happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. As simple as that seems in a short list, I want you to imagine just for a moment 
What would change in the way that you pray if you truly believe deep down in your soul each and every one of those presuppositions to the very core of your being? What if no part of your desire to pray or lack thereof were compelled by the illusion of an unfriendly or aloof or inactive or even cruel, disapproving, unknowable God? What if you didn't think the point of prayer was to read a grocery list to your ceiling? If you weren't fatalistic and pessimistic, not truly believing that your prayers really have any bearing on the future at all, would the way you pray or ask for prayer from other people be different? With all that established, Jesus gets on to the part that we recognize in the prayer template. The next line is, give us each day our daily bread. There's absolutely space for us to ask God for the things that we need. Heck, even the things that we want. Elsewhere, Jesus says that in particular. So last night, I made my kids dinner, and then they asked for mugs of hot apple cider. It sounded like a great idea to me, so I made those, and they enjoyed them. And then they asked, uh, can, we walk, can we stay up late and watch the new episode of this Godzilla TV show on Apple TV Plus or whatever? And I said, heck, man, it's Saturday. Let's do it. So... <laughs> Then we all sat there and enjoyed because they asked. Honestly, it wasn't part of my plan to do hot apple cider and stay up late. It was because they asked. God is after much more than your base survival. Quite frankly, he's after much more than just your spiritual formation and molding you into a good Christian. He is after your joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. Now, of course, he has a way of defining those things that can surprise us from time to time, but Take my word for it. His version always turns out to be better. And he's a good father. He's not Santa Claus or a genie, but you can and should ask for things. You get to do that. And why not? Jesus used little kids as an example of greatness in the kingdom. Why do you think we begin each gathering by blessing our many, many kids? Because this is the model set for us by Jesus. Jesus said, little kids are an example of greatness in the kingdom. One reason is that Little kids are not quite to the point yet where they know how to ask for things compelled by pretense or excess or greed or materialism. They ask for things because they assume good parents can provide them, that that's their job, they're dependent on them, or in their own way, they ask because they want more of their parents. They want more of their time and their attention and their affection, and they feel no shame in asking. My kids still ask, and I know that this is going to expire at some point, but my kids still ask, you know, 10, 7, and 2, literally daily, come snuggle me. In fact, they won't go to sleep until someone comes in. And so we understand that God is the source of every good thing and that there is no sense of life or love or purpose without God, that we distract, it, we distract ourselves into thinking otherwise. There is no real provision without God, His presence and then we can learn to ask him for things well. We assume he's good. He wants good things for us. I'm not embarrassed to ask God for things I want. I figure if I ask for the wrong thing, he'll work that out with me. Now, to end, look one more time at the way Jesus ordered this template. The Lord's Prayer, the text, and more so the version in Matthew's Gospel, is not primarily anyway, a liturgy to recite with exact specificity. You absolutely can do that. I do that. It's a beautiful thing to do. 
But it's more than that. It's a template to guide us in the way that we pray specifically. According to this guide, you begin with God as Father, inherently good, inherently good to me, close at all times, involved, accessible. He's unlike anyone else. He's wonderful. He's praiseworthy. We want to be like him. We want to be with him. We want the whole world to be different because of God and for God's sake. And then we ask for the stuff we need. We get to do that. We should do that. We don't orient our approach this way because God wants his ego inflated before he can entertain any requests. It's, it's because it rightly orders our hearts as we approach God. There are lots of different genres of prayer. And quite frankly, when I sat down to write this teaching for the vision series, I would have rather have done something else. But Jesus begins here. We've talked a lot about different ways to pray over the years here at Vance City. We will continue to do so. Why zero in on this one? Because this is how Jesus answered that question. How do you pray? Like this. This year, when I started to map out what we would do in this series, it occurred to me that the culture of prayer at Van City is in need of revival and reinvention in the months ahead. I'm not saying that to be down on us or anything like that. You know, but we've noticed uh, every single week, someone stands up here and they will read through a list sometimes one or two things, sometimes many things, that people from our church have sensed in prayer could be for someone or for many people in the gathering. We make space before every gathering. We have leaders who are doing that right now throughout the gathering, listening to God's Spirit and saying, hey, I think this could be for tonight, this could be for tonight. And there could be things like, oh, someone's facing a career change or, oh, someone has a hurt leg or someone has an anxiety issue. All kinds of things have come up over the years, often broad, sometimes hyper-specific, and then, on a given evening, maybe one or two people, um, often no people, will wander out of their seats to someone else and ask for prayer or into the back where our leaders stand waiting to pray for people to say, like, that was me, I need prayer. For a while, we thought, man, we are the absolute worst at hearing from God. Because <laughs> uh, some of these things seem like, man, they could have been so many given people, and yet no one responded at all. But then we started getting the emails, you know, hey, that thing on Sunday was for me, or hey, you know, you'd be having coffee with someone weeks later, and oh yeah, that thing that was said that night, that was for me. Um, and then often we'll ask, not in an accusatory way, but just like, oh, that's okay, what can I ask? Why didn't you come for prayer? Oh, I don't, I don't know. You know, I didn't, I just didn't. Every community has areas in which they need to grow together, and I think that this is one of ours. And rather that you then insist, you know, you better really come for prayer tonight, because uh, I don't know what's going to be said, and I don't know what the Spirit plans to do. Um, and I think that that would kind of be the cart before the horse. The idea is not to talk about this in our vision series and cast a vision for prayer in the year ahead because we want more people responding on a Sunday night. Of course, that would be lovely because it's indicative of the way we approach prayer, that we believe prayer does something and that we're listening and responding in prayer and in the moment. Um, but rather than focus on that, that's just an example from the life of our church, I want to instead issue humble invitation. If your prayer life is stalled or in a rut, or if it just feels underdeveloped, you know, spiritual formation can go like this at times and there are peaks and valleys. Um, if you're in a place where your prayer life seems as if it has regressed, or maybe you're new to prayer and your, uh, your theology of prayer is evolving, this week, 
I would invite you to just set aside a time and a place to pray through Jesus's prayer template every single morning in the week ahead, even if only for just 10 minutes. You can look at it and interpret it one piece at a time as you go. Each and every one of you could absolutely accomplish that if you decide to. Remember, you are always in control of how you do and do not spend your time. And prayer is absolutely a discipline. All meaningful relationships require intentionality and discipline. If you don't discipline and schedule your time with God, it won't happen with any consistency or value whatsoever anyway. Even if you just start very small, 10 extra minutes waking up, 10 little minutes earlier, setting aside 10 minutes in the evening, whatever it might be. So this week, again, my humble request, think about taking 10 minutes to simply pray your way through this very straightforward template and see what God does in your heart as a result. That's it. You guys could do that. I believe in you. I really mean that. And this practice is about what I believe to be the inevitable transition from work to joy. And I've, I've by no means arrived, you know, like I said, spiritual formation goes like this, and I've had seasons where prayer is robust and beautiful and seasons where it feels um, rote and routine. Um, but I do know enough to know that our practice of prayer can move from work to enjoyment. And believe it or not, there are folks out there who genuinely enjoy setting massive amounts of time aside just to pray. And yes, they're disciplined, but it's not just that. If you know somebody who prays that way, ask them, why do you want to pray like that? Why would you go spend a day in silence and solitude? Why do you spend an hour every morning? Whatever it might be, ask them. I think that they'll probably say it's because they know something that those of us who do not yet enjoy prayer have yet to learn. So this year, I want us as a church to learn that same thing together in the months and weeks ahead. The great incomparable joy of talking with a good father and knowing him and being known by him and seeing the world and ourselves change as a result. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.